This morning's sermon comes from Matthew 9, 1 through 17. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And Jesus reclined at the table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved." There were two boats that responded to the Titanic when it was sinking in April of 1912. One of the boats, the Californian, was about 20 miles away. They actually were in eye, eye shot of the Titanic. About 10 minutes before it hit the iceberg, they shut down their radios. Uh, the radio operator went to sleep because it was getting close to in the late evening, midnight hours. They saw uh, rockets and flares shot off from the Titanic, and they kind of looked around and wondered what was going on, why, that, why would they do such a thing? And they just ignored it and thought, I, maybe they're doing something, I don't know, having a fireworks show, whatever. Uh, and then they saw the lights on the Titanic actually turn off, and they thought, well, I guess they're just turning the lights off because they're going to bed, the, the ship is just kind of shutting down for the night. Bottom line is the crew of the Californian did nothing as the Titanic sunk. They saw it, they, they and did nothing, didn't turn their radios on, just went about their, their business. There was another boat, it was about 58 miles away, called the Carpathia. They had their radio on, and as soon as they got the distress call from the Titanic, they immediately turned the boat around Engines full blast, decided they would navigate the icebergs to get to the Titanic, and they went full bore, engines on for three and a half hours. And when they got there, many had perished, about 1,500 or so on the Titanic. But they were able to save about 705 people from the lifeboats. The crew on the Carpathia 
responded to the distress call. Now, there's an example in history of, of two different groups of people on two different boats. One who responded to a call, heard it and responded, and went into action, and another who didn't respond. This passage in Matthew chapter 9 sets up the contrast between two groups of people. One group that doesn't hear Jesus' call, doesn't respond to it, and therefore does not understand the mission of Jesus. And another group of people that hear his call and respond to it and understand his mission and understand his identity. The same is true today. What is the mission of Jesus? What is his call? Why did he come? That question alone, it's a, it's a super simple question. Why did Jesus come? And yet, the answers to that question are all over the map and produce very different responses to Jesus. So why did Jesus come to this earth? First, to forgive sin. Look at verse two. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. This is the same story that gets recorded in, in Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel. There they give the additional detail that this is the group of friends that dig a hole through the roof and drop Jesus down, or the paralytic down in front of Jesus. It's the same story. Matthew just doesn't give that extra detail. What's surprising in this story is what Jesus says to this paralytic. Verse two, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now this is surprising on the surface because Jesus seems very disconnected from this man's obvious needs. He's paralyzed. And Jesus seems at first to ignore that fact. But when you pause and reflect and think deeply about what Jesus says to this paralytic, two essential and beautiful truths begin to emerge. The first is that Jesus gets to the root of the problem. You got two ailments going on here, paralysis and sin. Jesus addresses sin first, why? Because sickness, disease, including paralysis, is a consequence of sin either a direct consequence or an indirect consequence. What do I mean by that? Sickness, disease, brokenness, all of it, right? Is either a direct con consequence of what you did or more commonly, 
It's an indirect consequence of what your first parents did thousands of years ago in Genesis 3 in the garden. But either way, sickness, paralysis, disease, brokenness, infirmity, all of that is a result of sin. And so Jesus gets to the root of the problem right away. Now, the scribes, the Pharisees, they didn't like this. In fact, they say in verse three, this man is blaspheming. Jesus is doing what only God can do. Only God can forgive sin, not some mere man. Jesus responds in verse four, why do you think evil in your hearts? Now the evil here is their inability to grasp the true identity of Jesus. Their inability to understand who this man is standing before them. And Jesus exposes this in verse five. He says, for which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? Now, how would we answer that question? What's easier to say, your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? To a modern person like us, we would say, say your sins are forgiven. Right, because the, the result of that is hard to test. It's hard to prove. Like, yeah, sure, your sin is forgiven. Anybody can say that. But to say rise and walk to a paralytic, right, the results of that are obvious. It's plain to the eye. But to the scribes and the teachers of the law in Jesus' day, it was just the opposite. Your sins are forgiven was much more difficult than to say rise and walk. Why? Because we have numerous examples in the Old Testament of Moses, of Aaron, of Elijah being credited with miracles, doing miraculous things like healing a paralytic. But you don't find someone granting forgiveness with such authority and with no mediation in the Old Testament. The scribes and the Pharisees understood that was something only God did, no man. And this is where the problem arises they missed that God was standing in front of them in the flesh. They missed that. And Jesus says that very thing in verse six. He says, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That title son of man comes straight from Daniel chapter seven, where it speaks of the divinity of Jesus, of the Messiah to come, that he would be God. So Jesus says, I am God and I have authority to forgive sin. Then he goes on to heal the paralytic. He does the less difficult thing to prove his authority to do the more difficult, which is to forgive sin. Why did Jesus come? He came to forgive sin. He came to get to the root of the problem. The root of the human problem that you and I see all around us is not economic injustice. It's not social injustice. It's not racial injustice, nor any other kind of injustice. Are those problems? Absolutely. But they're symptoms. They're symptoms of a deeper problem of the problem, which is sin. That is the problem. 
We are incredibly addicted to seeking change, whether it's personal, whether it's societal, through treating symptoms. And symptom work never results in lasting change. It never produces deep change. Root work does. It's the root work of sin, of, of rooting out sin, that then produces lasting change. In fact, the most radical transformation in society. When you look at the attempts to reform and, and, and change our society, the most radical transformation that you see in society and that you see in people's lives is not when symptoms are treated, but when Jesus forgives sin and transforms sinners. That's when you see radical transformation. That's when you see radical revival is when Jesus forgives sin and he transforms sinners. In your personal life, are you treating symptoms or are you getting to the root of the problem? And when you look at our society and everyone has an opinion on how to change our society, when you think about changing society, are you treating symptoms or are you getting to the root, which is sin? Jesus forgives Sin. This brings us to the second essential and beautiful truth that comes or that flows out of Jesus' words to this paralytic. That beautiful, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. When Jesus said, take heart, my son, that is a very gentle, compassionate address to this paralytic. Paralytic. This gentle address to the paralytic would have been incredibly cruel if this paralytic had no awareness of guilt of sin and only wanted freedom from his paralysis. Jesus knew this man's condition. He knew that beneath the physical paralysis was a soul that was tormented and consumed by guilt. And that's why he says, take heart, my son. Now, we know that is true. Could it be that this man's paralysis was a direct result of his sin? Maybe his sinful living had produced this paralysis? We don't know that. Certainly possible. But either way, Jesus is on display here, extending compassion and love and mercy to a man who is broken physically and he's broken at a soul level and he knows it and he needs forgiveness and he needs compassion and he needs his guilt taken away. Notice what Jesus didn't say, but what he could have said. You made a stupid decision, now you gotta live with it. Or you should have thought about the consequences before you started sinning like that. Jesus could have said that to him. And he did, and he said, take heart, my son. 
Look them in the eye. Your sins are forgiven. Your guilt is taken away. When you are tormented and consumed with guilt over your sin, what do you hear Jesus say? Maybe you hear what your parents said to you growing up or, or some other authority figure said to you growing up. You should be ashamed of yourself. You should be ashamed of yourself. You're better than that. I'm incredibly disappointed with you. You gotta live with the consequences of what you do. If you wouldn't have made that dumb decision, this wouldn't have happened, right? Those kind of responses. That's not the voice of Jesus. When, you're, when you are tormented and consumed by the guilt of your sin, the words of Jesus are, take heart, my son. Take heart, my daughter. Take heart, my child. Your sins are forgiven, your guilt is removed. Jesus came for that very reason, to forgive your sin, to take away your guilt. That's why he came. But second, why did he come? To forgive sin, second, to call sinners. Now this flows right out of the first reason. He came to forgive sin, which means he came to call sinners. Verse nine. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed Jesus. Matthew was a tax collector. That means a couple things. Number one, he collected taxes for the Roman government, which means he worked for the Romans, which means he was a traitor to his own people, the Jewish people. Number two, the Roman government required a certain amount for a tax collector to collect. Typically what happened is tax collectors would collect more to pad their own pockets. They were corrupt. And because of that, they were very wealthy. So Matthew was a traitor, he was corrupt, and then on top of that, tax collectors were constantly in contact with Gentiles, collecting taxes. And so therefore, they were seen as ceremonially unclean. They were socially ostracized by the religious people of the day. Traitor, corrupt, dirty and unclean. They were social outcasts in society. They were the dregs of society. They, they were seen as the disgusting elements of society. And yet this is exactly who Jesus calls. This is who Jesus extends this call to, me, to him, follow me. And Matthew gets up and follows. Now, Matthew worked in Capernaum. That's where his booth was. And Jesus headquartered his ministry out of Capernaum. So Matthew, this is not the first time he interacted with Jesus. He had seen Jesus, he had watched Jesus, maybe had an interaction with him, saw who he hung out with, saw how he operated, he had heard and seen 
And finally, he followed. The Gospel of Luke says that Matthew left everything. Again, tax collectors were wealthy. When Matthew left his booth and left that vocation, left that job, there was no turning back. He didn't go try it out with Jesus for a month or two and then come back and say, hey, I want my job back. No, he was done. So he did leave everything. He left his wealth, all to follow Jesus. And then, I love it, Matthew throws a party. I mean, he throws a party at his house. And look who's there. Fellow tax collectors, fellow sinners, right? The, the repulsive kind of dregs of society show up. I, I imagine this was an incredible party. And Jesus was there. I mean, this was a celebration. Matthew was celebrating becoming a disciple, a follower of Jesus. And guess who didn't like it? The Pharisees and the scribes, the religious people didn't like it. Verse 11, and when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, to Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? It was one thing for a religious teacher to like impart words of wisdom to sinners. That happened, that was really no big deal. Like to teach, to impart wisdom to a sinner on how to get better. But to eat, that was close association. That was relationship. That was rubbing shoulders with. That's what they were offended by. A Pharisee would have never entered Matthew's house because they would have become unclean. And yet Jesus did, and he responds in verses 12 and 13. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. By the way, that go and learn, that's a... Um, Jesus was a kind man, but that go and learn was like, you think you know the scriptures? You need to go reread them. And then he, he quotes from them. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He quotes from the Old Testament what they should have known. Right? They were scribes, teachers, Pharisees. They knew it well. He's like, you need to go back and read this again. That's from Hosea chapter six, verse six. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In Hosea, God is calling out the leaders and the teachers of Israel who are following the, the religious rituals and forms of the day in the temple. I mean, they are meticulously following the rituals, the forms of what they were to do in the temple. They are observing the religious traditions perfectly. But they in Hosea's day had completely forgotten about the compassion and the mercy of God. They had forgotten that it was the compassionate God who had delivered them out of Egypt. It was the God of compassion and mercy who cared for them in the wilderness for 40 years when they continued to sin over and over. 
It was the God of compassion that had revealed himself to them in many ways. It was the merciful God that gave them a sacrificial system to atone for their sins, to cover their sins. It was a compassionate God that promised to send a deliverer, a Messiah, who would forgive them, take away their guilt, make all things new. They had completely forgotten it. They preserved the shell and had lost the core of a merciful, compassionate God of steadfast love. Jesus quotes from Hosea to say to these Pharisees, you're doing the same thing right now. These religious people were condemning the tax collectors, the sinners, the dregs, the social outcasts of the day because they weren't living up to their finicky standards. And what Jesus does when he comes on the scene is just the opposite. Notice he doesn't condemn the tax collectors and the sinners. He eats with them and ends up condemning the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious teachers of the day. Jesus did not come. Back to the mission of Jesus, why did he come? He didn't come to congratulate the Pharisees. And they hated that. Jesus didn't come to congratulate you or to congratulate me because we really lived a good enough life that deserves a congratulation. No, he came to save sinners like you and me. He came to save the very people who are seen as despised and repulsive and offensive. And that's you and me. He came to save. That's his compassion and his mercy. There's a Christian woman who visited a condemned Nazi officer after the Nuremberg trials, which were held by the allies against the representatives of Nazi Germany. This Nazi officer was responsible for the brutal deaths of this woman's parents and her siblings and her own torture. She had heard that this officer was repentant. And so when she approached him, he began to weep and he begged for her forgiveness. And her initial response was bristling rage. How can I forgive this man after what he did? How are his pathetic tears gonna bring my family back? How could he do such a thing? And then she had this aha moment. She realized if the grace of God doesn't extend to this Nazi officer, then it's insufficient for me. She realized I need forgiveness just as much as he does. 
What is the, the quote, sinner that you deem quietly in your own heart as disgusting and repulsive and offensive? Or what sin immediately draws out your condemnation and your judgment? When you look figuratively or literally at that sinner or at that sin, you are moved into one of two places. There's no neutral ground. You're either moved towards pride or you're moved towards humility. There's no neutral ground. If we embrace, digest, understand what Jesus is saying here, then we're moved to a deep and profound humility because we understand two things. Number one, under a different set of circumstances, under a different set of parents, or under a different upbringing, I could find myself in the same place as that, quote, sinner. In other words, we are capable of the worst. And if we haven't done the worst, whatever that is in your mind, in your heart, then you have to look at God's grace of how you were raised, your upbringing, your circumstances that have preserved you maybe from getting to the worst. But the second would be this. If a video was replayed of your thought life, that's a scary thought. But if a video was replayed of your thought life and you were able to see it, you would realize, I'm not much different than that sinner that draws out my condemnation or that draws out my judgment because you realize that, wow, I have seed thoughts that are no different than that person's seed thoughts, but by the grace of God, those seed thoughts have not made, them so, made their way into behaviors. And so when we understand what Jesus is saying here, it drives us to this deep place of humility. Bottom line, if you feel good enough for Jesus, then he doesn't draw near to you. The Pharisees felt good enough for Jesus. And he didn't draw near to them. He drew near to the tax collectors and to the sinners of the day. And, and lest we go, well, well, wait a minute. Those are kind of the outcasts of society. What, what if I'm not really an outcast per se? No, no, this isn't about classes of people. This is simply about you understanding and owning your sin and the humility it brings. If you feel good enough for Jesus, he won't draw near to you. None of us are good enough for Jesus. None of us. That's grace, that's mercy. John Calvin, who was a theologian and a pastor during the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, explained Jesus' mission really well. He said this, Christ came to quicken the dead, 
to justify the guilty and condemned, to wash those who were polluted and full of wickedness, to rescue the lost from hell, to clothe with his glory those who were covered with shame, to renew to a blessed immortality those who were debased by disgusting vices. Jesus came to forgive sin, to call sinners like you and me, and last, to usher in the new. Verse 14, then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, the life of John the Baptist was one of, of uh, abstention from all kinds of indulgences. He lived a pretty self-disciplined life, and his followers kind of took on that lead, and so they lived that kind of life that made them very uh, similar or had a lot in common with the Pharisees, and that they fasted a lot. And, and, you, and you see here, there couldn't be more of a contrast between the Pharisees and John the Baptist's disciples and Jesus and his disciples, right? Jesus and his disciples are feasting. They're at a party with a tax collector, feasting. And the Pharisees and, and John the Baptist's disciples are fasting, feasting versus fasting. Very, very different behaviors. You might say, well, isn't fasting a good spiritual discipline? Didn't John the Baptist's disciples, were they onto something? Was Jesus mistaken? And then he didn't fast with his disciples. Well, you might be surprised to know that the only prescribed fast in the Old Testament was on the Day of Atonement once a year. And in Isaiah chapter 58, God actually prescribes not a literal fast, but he prescribes compassion and mercy and love towards one another. But by the time we get to Jesus' day, devout Jews were fasting twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays. They were fasting a lot beyond what the scriptures prescribed. And they saw their fasting as a way to gain merit with God. And that would be explained, and that's why it's not surprising that Jesus and his disciples did not participate in it. Now, Jesus explains why. Why he and his disciples didn't fast. And, and as he explains it, he's gonna give a, a personal reason and a, a structural reason. Verse 15, and Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. Throughout the scriptures, Jesus is called the bridegroom and the church, you and me, are called the bride. Mourning that's associated with fasting is appropriate for a funeral, not a wedding feast. That's what Jesus is saying here. The bridegroom, Jesus, is present. This is a time, this is a wedding feast, not a funeral. It's not a time to fast. And now he says, the day will come when the bridegroom goes away. That speaks of Jesus' death on the cross. 
And that when Jesus dies on the cross, it will be appropriate to mourn, to mourn and fast, which is what the disciples did when Jesus died. But three days later, when he rose from the dead, their joy was replaced. Their joy was brought back right? because Jesus was alive. And then once he ascended and sent his spirit, he was present by his spirit. The point is this, the presence of Jesus Christ calls for joy and feasting, not mourning and fasting. Second reason though, that Jesus and his disciples didn't fast. This was a structural one. Jesus explains this through two illustrations in verses 16 and 17. In verse 16, he talks about an old garment that needs to be patched. And he says, if an unshrunk piece of cloth is patched or used to patch this old garment, what's gonna happen is when that unshrunk cloth gets wet, it's going to shrink, it's gonna pull away, and it's gonna create a bigger tear than it was already there. And then he says in verse 17, he uses the example of wineskins. In that day, wine was uh, held in containers of animal skins. Old wineskins lost their elasticity. And so if you put new wine into an old wineskin, the new wine is continuing to ferment and it builds pressure, it's gonna burst. The wineskin's gonna burst. So Jesus uses these two illustrations to make a point. What, what point is he making? He didn't come to patch up a worn out Judaism. Nor did he come, and this is the key, he did not come to try to fit himself into the Old Testament structure. The Old Testament structures were like scaffolding on a building. When the building is constructed and done, the scaffolding comes down. It served its purpose. You don't leave the scaffolding up. If it's up, you, can, you can't really see the building. And so what Jesus is saying, new wine, new wineskins, is that old structures that serve their purpose to point to Jesus need to, be, need to come down. They need to be taken away. And it served its purpose. No longer would priests offer daily and weekly and monthly and yearly sacrifices for sin. No longer would the meeting place be, between God and people be the, the location of the temple in Jerusalem. It would be localized in the person of God's son, in Jesus. No longer would the Holy Spirit only be poured out on the leaders of God's community, but it would be poured out on the heirs of the new covenant, which is you and me and all who put their trust in Jesus. Everyone who puts their trust in Jesus receives the Spirit and the filling of the Spirit. These were all the, the God-ordained structures of the Old Testament that needed to come down with the arrival of Jesus because he fulfilled all of those structures. And so the scaffolding's taken down and now it's Jesus, the fulfillment of all of it, right? But that wasn't the biggest problem that Jesus faced when he came, were the God-ordained structures in the Old Testament that needed to come down. 
The biggest problem was the man-created or man-ordained structures that had developed that needed to come down. And fasting was one of them. Like I said, it was prescribed once a year in the Old Testament. They had gotten to, they were doing it twice a week. And so what they were trying to do was fit Jesus into their man-made systems that went beyond scripture. And Jesus is saying, no, you don't put new wine in old wineskins. You put new wine in new wineskins. Right? With the arrival of Jesus and what he was ushering in, it did not fit in the old mold of their man-ordained structures. Now, this has, this has huge implications for you and me today. Huge implications that mirror Jesus' personal and structural reasons for why he and his disciples didn't fast. Number one, your life personally and the life of the church should resemble a wedding feast and not a funeral. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't lament and mourn well over, over whatever suffering or hardship that you face. But what it does mean is there is this joy, wedding feast joy, that permeates your entire life, even when it gets really hard. And it permeates the entire life of the body of Christ, the church, when things get really hard. It's, it's James chapter one. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. Right, so, so you, your life, and, and, and we, the community of God's people, should resemble a wedding feast, not a funeral. And that means even when we do mourn and lament over hardship in our lives, there is this joy that permeates all of it. Because the bridegroom is here. Jesus is here by his Holy Spirit. Number two, you don't attempt to fit or squeeze Jesus into man-created or man-constricted structures and systems. You say, what in the world does that mean? What does it mean to try to fit Jesus or to squeeze Jesus into man-created or man-constricted systems and structures? Let me try to unpack that with a couple of questions. Is there room in your life, in the life of your family, in the life of this church, for the supernatural and miraculous work of Jesus through his Holy Spirit? Let me, let me ask that again. Is there room in your life, the life of your family, the life of this church for the supernatural and miraculous work of Jesus through his Holy Spirit? That Jesus can do something is powerful and able to do something in your life, the life of your community, the life of this church 
that there is no man-created system or category for it because it's supernatural? Is there room in your life for that? Or second question, is there room for Jesus to do a miraculous work of forgiveness in your life and the lives of others that brings supernatural healing to the soul? Some of you, and I can say this because I'm human as well, Some of you right now have a relationship or relationships where someone has sinned against you, offensively sinned against you, hurt you, harmed you. Like that woman with the Nazi officer, that kind of scenario, you're struggling to forgive. You're finding it hard to forgive. If you're living within a man-created, man-constricted system and structure, you will never, ever, ever find the power to forgive. Is there room in your life for Jesus to do a miraculous work of forgiveness that brings supernatural healing to your own soul and to the soul of those that are impacted by whatever has happened? And then last question. Is there room for Jesus to extend his grace to the sinner that you have quietly deemed unredeemable? Is there room in your life for Jesus to extend his grace to that sinner, that person that you have in your heart basically concluded is unredeemable. May 2024, 2024, be a year where Jesus Christ ushers in the new supernaturally, miraculously by his Holy Spirit in your life, in the life of your family, in the life of your friends, and in the life of this church. May that be the year that we're walking into. Because that's why Jesus came, to forgive sin to call sinners and to usher in the new. Let's pray. Father, we confess our pride. We confess as we read this story, we're we're quick to, probably quicker to side with the Jesus disciples and the tax collectors and the sinners and and to look at the Pharisees and the scribes and say, how could they do that? Father, we we are full of pride and pride is blind to itself. That's why we don't see it. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would humble us, that we would understand that you, God, have extended your grace to a sinner like us that we don't deserve it. We haven't done anything to gain your favor. That Jesus came to forgive sin and to call sinners. And Father, for those of us that are here in Christ, we are recipients of that forgiveness, of our guilt being removed, and that that should produce wedding feast type of joy because the bridegroom is here 
with us by the Holy Spirit. Father, for those here that are investigating who Jesus is, maybe even here because it's the new year, Father, I pray that you would do a work in their hearts. That if they've perceived Christianity to be this, this religion of works or I've got to clean up my life, I've got to fulfill my New Year's vows and resolutions, and if I do that, maybe God will be okay with me. Oh, Father, would you please help them to see that that's not the gospel? That you sent your son to come for sinners, broken, guilty sinners to not only save, not only forgive and remove sin, but to, to renew and to transform. Father, we pray for all that 2024, as we walk into it, would be a year of renewal, a year of transformation, a year of healed relationships, a year of growing in grace, a year of really believing that our guilt has been removed, our sin has been removed. And the result would be a joy that permeates everything we do, a deep joy. Because the, the, the feast that we celebrate in the Lord's Supper is coming one day, full and final, when Jesus returns. Father, we are gonna sit around a table and eat a feast. And it will be a wedding feast celebration. And yet by the Holy Spirit, that is true now. Help us to be a people of joy We pray this all in Christ's name, amen.